You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. It's 2022. I hope you're having a great new year. I hope things are going well for you. Uh, I'm, I'm here late in the studio tonight doing some remodeling, actually kind of ripping out everything and, and redoing it. This studio is great. I really love this space. Uh, but the studio itself was kind of makeshift. I, I, I put it all together real quickly and uh, at the end of the year, we're kind of tearing things out, gonna kind of redo some things, uh, actually make it a little bit better for video than it is now. And so, yeah, it's kind of a mess in here, but I put it all together so I could do a podcast for you. It's late at night here in central Minnesota. Uh, I, we, we like to, uh, probably humble brag about some of these things, but, uh, it's, tw- <laughs> I just looked, <laughs> It's 23 below zero right now. So it's a, it's a little chilly, but uh, I know back home we got a fire going. I put some wood on before I left. I'm going to go home uh, when we're done here and stoke that fire up and get it nice and hot. And uh, it's it's toasty and cozy inside. And you, you can take the dog for a walk. He doesn't mind, uh, but don't be out too long. I, I want to talk today about the... I, I hate to use the word epidemic because that's the word that's being used. And, and at the end of this, we're going to talk about why the, this is happening. But the fact that fatalities have gone up on our roadways during the pandemic, despite driving going down, Americans drove less during the early months of the pandemic, yet fatalities went up. There, there was a sense amongst many driving experts that you know, when the pandemic was over, this kind of weird anomaly would go away and we would get back to normal. But as the pandemic has kind of worn on and become endemic, what we've seen is that traffic levels have actually gone back to overall volumes of where they were, yet uh, the fatality rate has stayed stubbornly high. There's, there's still more people dying now than there was back in 2019 on our nation's roadways. This has prompted this search for explanations. Uh, a search that to me is, is very misguided. Uh, there was an article in the LA Times I'm going to focus on in this podcast that to me was on one hand bizarre and on the other hand kind of dangerous and, and, and dangerous because of what it did do and what it didn't do. What it, what it did do was take some divisive cultural narratives and impose them on uh, highway deaths and fatalities in a way that I find intellectually lazy. But it also uh, is dangerous in the sense that people are actually being killed. And this intellectual laziness is not actually getting at the problem, at the issue. That issue is very uncomfortable for a lot of people in the transportation profession, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. I think it's important up front to recognize a couple of things. First, there's a paradigm within transportation professions that looks at the fatality rate as a function of how many miles are driven. 
So in other words, we've had for quite a period of time now, fatalities on our roadways that have stayed relatively the same around 30,000, 35,000 a year for, for quite a while. The, the, the advocates will go back and say, well, in the 1970s, there was 50,000 people a year dying. Now we're, we're only at, you know, 35,000 a year. Um, so it's, it's gotten better. And, and when they look at it in long stretches, they tend to use those numbers. But when they look at it in the near term, say the last decade or the last two decades, when the numbers have remained overall at the same rate, what they will say is that, yes, but the rate per mile traveled has gone down. So yes, uh, the same number of people are being killed, but that's because there's so many more miles being traveled. And, you know, there's a certain rate per mile traveled. And as long as that is going down, uh, then everything is okay. And they can point to all the, the happy safety things we've done, uh, you know, airbags, enforcement, education campaigns, what have you, as being one of the explanations for that. I think that is wrong too. And we're going to get to why in a little bit, but I, I want to start with that paradigm because if you buy into that paradigm, uh, you, you, you wind up accepting a lot of death as long as you can get people to drive more. Right. Um, that's a, that's a wrong way of thinking of this. There's another, there's another paradigm or there's another oddity of transportation that I, I want to give you up front and just have you kind of think about here for a bit before we delve into this too deeply. And, and that is how we do crash analyses. Anytime there is a, a fatal crash, uh, anytime there is a crash over a, a certain dollar amount in many states where the, the claim will be so high, there's a police report put together. The police will go out and, and they have certain things that they, they do. They've got a, a checklist in a sense where they will document the factors that went into this crash. Those often include things like, uh, was the driver speeding? Um, was the, were, the, were, were the drivers or the people involved uh, under the influence of some kind of drug? Were they suspected of being distracted or too tired? Or, you know, what, what, were, what were the factors uh, at bear here that, that caused this crash? They'll take measurements of breaking distances and certain things to try to ascertain in an insurance kind of sense, who was at fault? Understand what this is. Th this is an analysis largely through the prism of insurance claims of where the blame for the crash should occur. Of the potential uh, blame, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, but the people who would be blamed. If we go down a list of, of those people who would be blamed for the crash, you would have the, you know, Everybody who's in a vehicle, everybody who is walking, who was hit, anybody who was hit and, uh, and, and, and part of this incident, and then anyone who may have uh, inadvertently caused that to happen. The, that would be the lineup of people who would be at blame. And when we go out and analyze crashes, we are in a sense performing a function for the insurance companies where we are analyzing you know, using scientific methods and what have you, who amongst the participants in an incident is to blame and what percentage are they to blame? I, I know the cops won't say that that's what they're doing. I know the, 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 you know, 
the engineers and the crash analysis and the, the people involved in this won't say, you know, that's what they're doing. They're, they're looking at this crash and they're trying to see, you know, what happened. But the, the impetus for it, the checklist, the things all there are all designed to filter down to, in a sense, an insurance claim, or, you know, if we're going to go to the next level, some type of legal action, someone was driving drunk, they're going to be held responsible. Here's the, the clues you treat it as a, a crime scene. What is left out of that, of course, is any broader analysis, any broader analysis of roadway conditions, any broader analysis of, uh, you know, engineering factors. Um, all of that stuff is, is notably absent, right? And so far out of the conversation that it's, 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 you know, doesn't percolate anywhere uh, in the, the whole analysis of a crash. I want you to hold those two things in the back of your mind because we're, we're going to come back to both of them here at the end. But I, I want you to have both of those in mind as we delve into this LA Times article. The, the article was called uh, Car Crash Deaths have surged during COVID-19 pandemic. Here's why. It was published on December 8th, 2021. It was written by Emily Baumgartner and Russ Mitchell. And the article goes into kind of the bafflement of people, uh, safety experts and, and, and transportation professionals for why this is going on. And then their theories about what is causing this. And I, I'm going to read a little bit from this article at the beginning, and then I'm going to read a couple quotes here from from the middle and the end. Let me let me just start here at the top. Quote, it was a tally that shocked the experts. 38,680 deaths on US roadways last year, the most since 2007, even though pandemic precautions had dramatically reduced driving. This was completely unprecedented, said Ken Kolosh, a researcher at the nonprofit National Safety Council. We didn't know what was happening. One possibility was that stressed out Americans were releasing their anxieties on the wide open roads. He guessed that fatal accidents would decline in 2021 when traffic returned. He was wrong. The latest evidence suggests that after decades of safety gains, the pandemic has made U.S. drivers more reckless, more likely to speed, drink, or use drugs, and leave their seatbelts unbuckled. I fear we've adopted some really unsafe driving habits, and they're going to persist, Kolosh said. Our roads are less safe than they were pre-pandemic. Experts say that this behavior on the road is likely a reflection of widespread feelings of isolation, loneliness, and depression. We might decide, this is a, <laughs> I'm going to end with this, this is a quote uh, from Shannon Frateroli. I apologize if I got the name wrong. She's a researcher at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Here's the quote. We might decide, what does a seatbelt or another beer matter anyway when we're in the middle of a pandemic? I, I, there's some more stuff in here that I'm going to excerpt, but I'm, I'm going to stop right there because I think you get the gist of where this is going. All we, We've gone into this pandemic and Americans, because of the stress and the strain and the isolation of the pandemic, uh, the, the, so the theory goes, so the idea is, had just said like, screw it, we're going to die anyway, might as well drive reckless. Well, what does another beer matter if you're going to die at any point in the future? Who, who cares? Uh, let's go out and drive fast. Let's live life loose and free. Let's uh, go out and, you know, 
party like there's no tomorrow, live, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? That makes a really fun story, <laughs> right? That, that if, if you're sitting and writing like a screenplay, that makes for a really compelling screenplay, right? Uh, you know, you, you, you can wrap a lot of what we're all kind of feeling inside in terms of angst and anxiety. You, you can wrap that all in into a really nice narrative that as you're reading this, you're like, yeah, my gosh, I, I've been through this pandemic with everybody. I, I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling isolated. I'm feeling depressed. I, I get all that. I get those widespread feelings. I see why people would, you know, have those kind of feelings. Th this, this is a good story, right? It's not science. It's not actually what's going on. Uh, and it's not based on anything but kind of the cultural narrative or the story narrative uh, that these so-called safety experts want to talk about. Uh, but it makes for a good story. Let, let, me, let me go on because the story gets even better. Uh, here's a professor from Temple University in Philadelphia, a guy named Frank Farley. He says that COVID-19 marks a, quote, a sea change in psychology, and he has come up with something that he calls arousal breakout, which I tried to research and figure out what it is. I, I, I couldn't find the term anywhere, but I think you get a sense of what he's talking about in the context here. Here's a quote. You've been cooped up, locked down, and have restrictions you chafe at. So if you can have an arousal breakout, you want to take it. Again, <laughs> I, I think, especially for a certain type of person, who's looking at this with, uh, you know, the, the anxiety and the tension at the other that we have created. The idea of, you know, a bunch of macho men going out in their monster trucks without their seatbelts on, liquored up because they're chafing under, <laughs> you know, the lockdown restrictions as like a, a really affirming kind of narrative to it, right? This is a good story. This is a story that speaks to a certain angst. And I'm going to take this a next step further and say a certain angst amongst an expert class of people, an expert class of people that, you know, in this pandemic have become even more isolated from, let's say, the non-expert class of people. Uh, and, and, and by isolated, I mean, there's an antagonism and there's an antagonism both ways on this, Right. Um, but the, the LA times isn't interviewing the Bubba on the street to find out what's going on with road fatalities. Let, let me go down a little bit further in this article. Uh, this is a, a quote by Jonathan Adkins, who's the executive director of the governor's highway association, which is a, a Washington nonprofit representing agencies nationwide. He, he says this quote, anecdotally, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> Okay, we, I will start with that. I, I'm going to start over. Quote, anecdotally, we hear from governor's office all around the country that it's a symptom and a sign of the overall lack of consideration we're showing for other citizens, whether it be wearing masks or not getting vaccinated or how we drive. It's very aggressive. It's very selfish. Now, I don't care what your thoughts are on vaccinations and mass. I, I'm going to say just for the record here, just so I don't, uh, you know, um, get, get misperceived or misunderstood in any way. Um, 
I live in a very red part of the country. Uh, I live in a part of the country that has, has not been as affected by the pandemic as what we get from other places, although that may also be a function of, of media. I, I don't know. I myself am double vaccinated. Uh, I've got the booster shot. I travel a lot. I'm very comfortable wearing a mask. I often am the only masked person in some settings around here. Uh, so I, I am I am down with and on record very early on as saying uh, these precautions made a lot of sense. There are things we should do. I'm on board. I've been doing them myself. Uh, you know, I, I don't want anyone to misperceive this as being a critique of of COVID policy or vaccinations. I'm not going there. What I where I am going and what I do want to kind of draw your attention to is that this is a great story, right? If you're reading this, you know, and you're the, the typical LA Times reader, and I'm, I'm, I don't know the demographics of the typical LA Times reader, but, but let's surmise a little bit that they, they may be more sympathetic to the idea that people not wearing masks are selfish, people not wearing masks may be, you know, aggressive, let's say the way that uh, Jonathan Atkins uh, in that last quote describes. This, this, this makes for a really, really good story. And if you're trying to say like, hey, we don't know what's going on, uh, but I'm the safety expert, I'm the transportation expert, uh, I'm the person to turn to to figure out what's going on, and I'm looking at the data and I'm telling you, uh, these guys out there are really selfish. They're really aggressive. They're driving drunk. They're not wearing their seatbelts. They don't care about you. And boy, is this just a nasty country to live in. That's a narrative that is easy for a lot of people to buy into. I think in a lot of ways, it's too easy, right? It's too easy. I want to give you my theory of what's going on. And to give you my theory, I, I want to give you a little bit of stuff out of Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, the, the, the latest book that we released here at Strong Towns. I, I, this is, if you've been with the podcast for a while, none of this is going to shock you. None of this is going to surprise you. You've heard this from me to one degree or another, but I, I want to try to pull it together and then give you my theory and understand there's a difference between a theory and a hypothesis to test the theory. We're going to get the hypothesis next. For those of you that are, you know, bugaboos on the scientific method, I can be too. Let me give you my overall theory of what is going on. Uh, understand, we've overbuilt, we've over-engineered, we've over-designed our roads and streets. And we've done that based on this belief that having greater buffers, having more room for maneuverability, having increased recovery areas, that's how we're going to improve safety. That's the theory of engineering that we've had post-World War II, forgiving design, the idea that we create all this extra room for drivers and that will make things safe. And, and the people who at the top are saying, we have been lowering the, not the overall death rate, but the per mile death rate, not the overall number of people killed a year, but the number of people killed per mile. Uh, they largely adhere to this idea that it's, seatbelts, it's airbags, it's enforcement, it's uh, public and, you know, information campaigns, it's wider lanes, it's extra shoulders, it's extra buffering, it's removing the trees, it's, it's all of this uh, aggressive, I'll use the word, engineering uh, that is actually reducing this rate of death. I don't think it is, but, but that's their theory, right? Um, 
the idea here is that providing all this stuff, you give drivers a, a margin for error, right? The reality is that the exact opposite happens. What happens is that when you give drivers extra room, when you give them extra room to maneuver, they perceive a higher level of safety. And they will use that higher level of safety not to feel safer, they will use that higher level of safety because they are human to increase their performance, to drive faster. I, I'm, I'm gonna take a, a little diversion here and talk about some of the insights from the NFL, the National Football League. Um, National Football League has gone through a, 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 a period of time where they struggled with, and, and probably still are, I, I don't keep fully up to date on the NFL. I'm from Minnesota. We, we've lost four Super Bowls and we're pretty, <laughs> pretty pathetic every year. Uh, just, just win enough to give you a little bit of hope, uh, but never quite enough to actually give you any pride. And I'm 48 now, and I've been through that ringer many times, and, and I, I tend to not pay a lot of attention to it anymore. Uh, you know, sound sour grapes, right? The, the NFL went through a, a process of dealing with the ramifications of concussions. Uh, concussions, uh, we've learned a lot more about it seems like we've learned a lot more about them in the last decade. I, I suspect we learned a lot more about them before that, but the, the actual knowledge has started to trickle into the way we deal with sports and athletics. In the sport that I love the most, baseball, uh, most notably they've uh, gotten rid of collisions with the catcher in order to reduce concussions. Um, there were a lot of people who said that would ruin the game. It's not ruined the game at all. Uh, and it's allowed a lot of people who uh, otherwise would be not playing baseball to be able to play longer. This is a really good thing. In football, there was a, a, a sense for a while that the way you dealt with concussions, the way you dealt with traumatic brain injuries was to uh, give people more padding, right? Give them a helmet with more padding, give them a thicker helmet, give them more shoulder pads, give them more, uh, you know, what, what have you. Just get, bulk them up and give them more cushion so that they could take that beating and, and not have uh, the concussive effects. Th that didn't work. And it didn't work for a couple of reasons, but one of the main ones was that NFL players, when they're given more padding, uh, don't, don't, don't use that to enjoy greater levels of safety. Uh, they use that padding to just hit harder, right? If I've got more padding, I can hit you a lot harder. And what they found is that as padding went up, traumatic brain injuries went up. There's, you know, as an American, sometimes I look at rugby and I'm just astounded. I'm like, how are these people not all dead? But when you talk to rugby players, you know, there's a lot of hits in rugby. There's a lot of injuries in rugby. Um, but overall, there tends to be less trauma than in something like American football. And that is because uh, when you, you know, you, you don't have that safety buffer. You don't have that protection. And people are not lulled into, in a sense, a false sense that I can hit you really hard. And there's no ramification for that. American highway design American roadway design and American street design is stuck in the paradigm of the old NFL. Instead of saying, you know, you can't hit someone with your helmet, you can't hit someone in the helmet, you can't, 
tackle someone when the play is called. You, you can't take the quarterback and slam them to the ground. Like you can't hit extra hard. The, instead of that, where they're at today, the, the, the transportation profession is stuck back in the old paradigm, which is let's give people more padding. Let's give them airbags. Let's give them seatbelts. Let's give them uh, wider lanes. Let's give them clear zones. Let's give them recovery areas. Let's do all that. And that will make things safer. It doesn't. What it does is it makes people drive faster, right? It induces people to drive faster. And, and let me just say, there's a certain number of you out there who are saying now, well, that's why we need enforcement. <sighs> I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I think I've got time for this diversion too. Um, for all of you who are saying, you know, well, let's just increase enforcement then. Uh, let me tell you what, that is, is, a, is a non-starter of a notion too. Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. In the book, he describes cognitive processes in terms of system one and system two. System one is the very quick, that's the fast uh, way of thinking. Uh, we're not talking about involuntary thinking here. You know, your breathing, your heartbeat, all that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, system one being, if I ask you what two plus two is, uh, all of you can say four. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to, you know, do any deep mental cognition. It just comes to you. That's, that's system one. System two, on the other hand, is the part of the, the kind of thinking that requires you to put other things out of your brain in order to do it. If I ask you to add two four-digit numbers together, there's a certain percentage of you in this audience that can do that very quickly, but most of us, and I would include myself in this, would actually need to think about that problem. We need to visualize the numbers, you know, carry the one, all that stuff in our brains in order to come up with an answer. Or we'd have to do some, you know, approximation and then add, subtract, you know, the little tricks. While we were doing that, all the other cognitive things that our brain could be doing would kind of be shoved to the side, right? That is system two. Humans are capable of doing system two 5% of the time, right? We, we just, we, it is, it is, it takes a lot of energy. It's because a lot of stress It's very draining. You can only do it for a very limited period of time. Humans are very comfortable in system one. And we spend almost all of our time, in fact, the book suggests 95% of our time in system one, where we just, you know, react to things around us. It, it, we, we, we don't have to sit and do deep mental processing all the time. We just function. Driving is a system one activity. Driving is something we do without thinking real deeply. That is why when you drive, you can listen to the news on the radio. You can think about what happened at work. You can sing along to your favorite song. You can talk to someone in the passenger seat and actually carry on a conversation. Listen to them have cognitive back and forth. That's why you can do those things because driving is a system one activity. And, and let me go a step further. Driving has to be a system one activity because if driving were not a system one activity, humans could not do it, right? The humans who can do driving as a system two activity, they're called jet fighter pilots and race car drivers, right? That, that's, <laughs> when, when, you, when you look at like the Indy 500, as someone who's never, and, and I can't say that I've ever driven in this either, but I, I have a, a little bit of awareness of what goes on. 
there's a lot of people who look at this and say, why is the person exhausted? They just drove in a circle for four hours. Like, what's the big, what's the big deal? Like, I don't get it. Like I drive all the time. It's like, why does this wear you out? Because they're living in system two for that entire time. They are feet away from someone else's bumper. They are highly attentive. Everything out is crowded out of their brain. And there's a physical exhaustion that comes from being in that space. That's not how the rest of us drive. We all drive in system one. Think of when you go into a, a, a crowded parking lot, right? And uh, ponder your behavior or, or note your behavior next time you do this. You might be riding along, listening to a, a good song on the radio. You might be talking to someone in the next seat. Whatever you're doing, when you enter in, let's say you've got someone in the next seat. You're having a conversation. You're really like talking. Uh, you pull into that parking lot and there's all this stuff going on. There's all this chaos. There's all people walking, people pushing carts, kids, you know, whatever, cars backing out. Take note next time you do that. What will happen is that the conversation will stop and it will stop mutually. Both of you will stop talking. The driver will stop talking because they're now using that 5% of the time that they're in system two. They've shifted out of system one and into system two. They're no longer capable of carrying on a conversation and doing the activity in front of them. The passenger will also stop talking. They don't have to be told to stop talking. You know, they don't have to be say, hey, hold this conversation, I'm distracted now. They intuitively understand that the driver is no longer listening to them, so why bother talking? It's a natural thing. We all understand this as humans. There are a lot of activists out there. There's a lot of uh, safety advocates that would like driving to be a system two activity where drivers were always hyper aware of their surroundings, where they were always focused on everything around them, hyper aware, hyper vigilant. And, and, and they even go so far as to say, well, you're driving a two ton killing machine. How can you not be vigilant? And I'm telling you, we may want that. We may think that's a desirable goal. We may wish that humans did that. Humans are not capable of doing that. Driving is a system one activity. And because driving is a system one activity, drivers uh, take their cues subtly, subconsciously from the design around them. If you give them wide lanes, if you give them clear areas, if you give them recovery areas, they will perceive a margin of safety and they will use that margin of safety subconsciously to drive fast. That's what happens. And so that is in a sense, the inducement or the thing that we have created with the, the way we have over-designed, over-engineered and overbuilt our systems. Now I want to, add a, a little wrinkle to this because I just talked about driving fast and I want to say this and I want you to hear it very clearly to me. High speeds are not dangerous. They're not dangerous per se. High speeds alone are not dangerous. If, if you're driving across Nebraska on the interstate going 90 miles an hour you're actually in some of the safest environment driving that you'll ever be. The interstate is wide, it's clear, it's got wide lanes, there's no intersections, there's no ramps, you can go miles and miles and miles without intersecting with another vehicle in any way. It's ridiculously easy to go 85, 90 miles an hour um, because there's nothing there, right? 
Speed is not the danger problem per se. What creates the danger is when speed is combined with randomness. So when you have cars that are going at lethal speeds and they're in an environment where there's no extraneous things, it's just like a clear shot, like driving across Nebraska, not a big deal, right? It's actually like very safe per mile traveled, some of the safest areas you'll be. But when you put speeds that are lethal and speeds that are lethal can be over 20 miles an hour. Uh, if you're talking about a, a human walking, right? Um, if, if, if you are going to have lethal speeds and you're going to put that in an environment where there is randomness, now you have a, an incredibly dangerous situation. When you have drivers entering and exit, exiting the, the stream of traffic, when you've got intersections, when you've got drivers pulling in and out of driveways or parking stalls, not to mention, you know, people walking, people biking, people in wheelchairs, all these things. When you have those things, what happens is that there is this statistical randomness, but a statistical inevitability that at some point, the combination of perceived safety, people driving the speed that they perceive to be safe, and the random occurrence of some event, someone turning out, someone stopping, someone pulling over, someone hitting their brakes, something, the, the, the statistical inevitability is what creates that tragedy. It's what creates the fatalities. It's not high speeds. It's high speeds in combination with randomness. So here's my theory of what's going on. When you look at these dangerous situations, you can take care of that driver error or you can, you, you can make these environments safe in kind of one of three ways, right? The first way is, and, and, and let me give this as, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of preferred way of the, the expert class. Um, you can eliminate driver error, right? If you want to make uh, these environments safe, you want to reduce fatalities. Uh, you heard these experts at the top from the LA Times quoted, uh, the problem here is we need to fix the humans. The humans are broken. The humans are reckless. They're selfish. Uh, they've got all these like deviant behaviors. If we can just fix the humans, uh, we, can, we can fix this situation. I, I find that to be like a certain almost evil kind of hubris right? There's a certain mindset that has that. But, but let's put that on the table as like one way to fix this problem. The second way to fix this problem is to remove the randomness, right? Let's remove the randomness from the situation. And, and in strong towns terms, this would be going from a strode-like condition into more of a road-like condition. So remove the intersections, remove the reasons people would stop and start, remove the, the, the traffic entering and exiting the traffic stream, uh, make it as smooth of driving as possible. Now you eliminate the randomness and the, the crash rate will go down. The third way to deal with this is to slow speeds, right? The third way to deal with this is to actually slow down traffic. And when you slow down traffic, what you do is you increase the margin for error 
and you lower the stakes on every collision, right? So when you're at slower speeds, you have more reaction time. And if you do hit something, the likelihood of it being a serious crash goes way, way down. There's a fourth method. I'll, I'll allude to it, but I'm going to have Peter Norton on here, hopefully in the next few weeks to talk about the automated vehicle revolution. I uh, just finished his latest book on the subject. And let me tell you, uh, a podcast in the 1950s would have talked about the automated vehicle revolution that was sweeping the country and sure to be in place in the next decade. The same way that we were talking about the same thing in, in 2010, uh, the same thing we were talking about in 2020, and the same way we're talking about it today. I, I, I think it is a fantasy, but let's put it out there as a fourth way. So we can fix the humans. We can uh, remove the randomness. Uh, we can slow speeds. That's the three ways we fix this problem, right? I think the first way is bunk. I think the second way is not feasible in urban areas. And so the third way is to reduce speeds. And this gets to the core of my theory of what is actually going on with the deaths on our highway post beginning of the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, there was overwhelming levels of traffic congestion in our cities, in our commutes, uh, because of the nine to five commuting patterns. And you could go to some cities where the congestion starts at 6 a.m. and it doesn't abate until 7 or 8 p.m. So you had large swaths of the day with massive, overwhelming, stifling levels of congestion. And if you look at that congestion, what was the result of that? The result of that is that you had overall lower speeds. The more that you had congestion, you would have certainly fender benders. Uh, you would have a lot of crashes. Crash rates did not necessarily go down. But what you see in those conditions is that fatality rates go down because people are driving slower. And when they are driving, they take those brief instances because they're in the stop and go and they shift into system two. Congestion actually calmed traffic and made things safer. When the pandemic began, what happened? The congestion went away. And this allowed the drivers that remained to essentially exploit that full over-engineered capacity of the roadway, right? Now there's nothing in their way. There's nothing slowing them down. There's nothing stopping them from going fast. And so now you have the condition where you have a lot of vehicles still on the road going very, very fast with a lot of randomness still built in. It's that combination, remember, high speeds and randomness. That's the fatal combination. Now, traffic levels are back up, but the fatalities remain. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Now we've got work from home. There's a huge percentage of the population that does no longer has to commute at nine to five. They're still taking trips. They're still going to the office. They're still working in different places, but, but they've been able to transition to a, a, a commuting pattern or a driving pattern where they can select the time of travel more than they could before. And so what you see, and you see this in our major cities today, yes, there are places where you still have congestion and there's times when you still have congestion, but the overall levels of congestion have not reached where they were pre-pandemic. What you see is that 
the volume has gone back to where it was, but that volume is spread out over a longer period of time. People are able to choose when they drive. And because of that, you have the net overall effect of more people being on the road during periods of peak danger. Peak danger being where you have high speeds with excessive randomness. That is what is causing the death rates that we're seeing. It's the over-engineering. It's the signaling the wrong thing to drivers. It's signaling to them that everything is fine, and it's the removal of the congestion that actually counteracted that over-engineering. This is the absurdity of what we've done. We've actually spent ridiculous amounts of money building for all this capacity. It's dangerous. It's fatal. It's, it's a terrible way to build. But we spent lots and lots of money doing it. And the thing that has actually, and this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of why has the fatality rate gone down per mile traveled? Because what has happened is that more and more people have had their driving experience be in times of lots of congestion. And so, yes, we're traveling a lot, but we're traveling at times when the over-engineering of the roadway is reduced. The danger is actually reduced because of the excessive levels of congestion. Here's the, here's the irony of all this. When you have excessive levels of congestion, when you have, in the engineering speak, level of service D, level of service F, you don't need all that extra safety buffer anyway. What, what good is a clear zone doing you when you're going five miles an hour, right? What good, is a, what good is a buffer area when your average commuting speed is 9.2 miles an hour? Which it is on many major highways, right? So this has created a farcical situation where we're spending ridiculous sums of money for a performance that we never experience, theoretically, and when we do experience it, when we do get the opportunity to experience the performance that we're paying for, we find that it is ridiculously dangerous and it's actually killing people. Now go back to the narrative, right? Go back to the story. Oh, people are reckless. People are driving drunk. People are driving without seatbelts. It's, it's amazing to me because, uh, you know, they're saying, we're, we're seeing all these people show up now without seatbelts. We're seeing all these people show up driving drunk. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that, that there isn't something going on socially, right? I, I, I described it uh, a little bit this way. Th th there's a lot of uh, evening behavior that has now become daytime behavior, right? Like having a beer for lunch <laughs> when, you're, when you're working from home, like what the heck? You know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a drinker, but, uh, you know, I've been known to be in my pajamas sometimes at noon working behind the laptop, right? We've all, we've all done that. There's a joke about, right, you've got the Zoom shirt on and the shorts underneath, right? We, we, there's a lot of evening behavior that happens during the day. There's a lot of daytime behavior that happens now during the evening, right? A lot of us that were used to being done with work at, at five are now in the Zoom lifestyle, working from home, and we're finding we're working late at night, we're working at odd hours, so this is a trade-off. It's a social trade-off. And, and I, I am not going to pretend that there isn't some complexity there that is, that is interacting with this large, complex system. But that's not what's driving this. That's not what is driving this change. 
Those people have always been there driving trunk, right? They've always been there without their seatbelt on. They just haven't shown up in the accident statistics because they haven't been the crashes. And you can say, well, you know, oh, we're seeing so many more. No, you, you're seeing, what you're seeing is statistically more of this interaction of high speed and randomness. That's what you're seeing. That's what we're seeing. I think it's pernicious. I think it's, it's beyond pernicious. I, I think it's, I, 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 I don't want to ascribe motives to people. I, I, I think it's intellectually lazy to fall back on these kind of cultural tropes of, you know, the, 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 the reckless anti-vaxxer out there, you know, not getting his shot, not wearing his mask, and then driving drunk and reckless. I, I, if, if that were the case, then let, let's, you know, let's do a study, right? Let's do a study. Let's go out and look and see uh, what the fatality rate is, how much it's changed in areas with high vaccination rates and areas with low vaccination rates. And, and if that theory is correct, it's a, it's a theory, we can test it with a hypothesis. The hypothesis is, all right, uh, we can get the data from areas that have very high vaccination. What we should see is that, tra that traffic uh, crashes should go down in those areas. The rate should go down in those areas. And the selfish you know, places, the reckless places, uh, the traffic crashes should be going up there. And, and we could go look at that data. Nobody is because it's a stupid theory. It's a stupid theory based on a, a screenplay narrative of the current American zeitgeist. It's insulting. And quite frankly, I, I, I'm disgusted by it. I find it to be not only a form of, of intellectual laziness, but just a form of like soft corruption, right? It, it's that way all the way down in this profession, starting with, you know, the base assumption of our design all the way down to how we, we only look at the theories that affirm our base, you know, our, our base design parameters. It disgusts me. Let me give you the hypothesis to test my theory because, you know, every good theory, a, a, a good theory is one that has a testable hypothesis, right? Um, I, I, I'm going to go on a, a slight little diversion here. Uh, provide me some latitude. This might this might destroy all of my credibility with you. Um, I, I've had fun, and I'm gonna say good time fun, uh, watching a handful of episodes. I'm not like an addict or anything. I think there's like I don't know a dozen seasons of Ancient Aliens, um, but some of the shows are kind of fun. And I've actually watched I think a little bit of season one and season two, a few episodes here and there. I think it's kind of funny. I like it. I, I, one of the things that I find fascinating about it is that it's a theory that we actually like someday could prove or disprove or at least find ways to affirm or disconfirm it. But right now today, there's like no method to do that, right? There's, it, it's, it's a theory with evidence. You can think the evidence is crazy or not. Um, but, you know, the, it's a theory and I find just the, the scientific process of it to be kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's not violatable in a sense by the data that we have today. 
That's not really a good, I mean, it's an interesting theory. And I guess you could say in the future, it could be tested. But a really good theory is one that produces out of it hypotheses that can be tested. Einstein's theory of relativity is much stronger than, say, string theory today because Einstein's theory of relativity led to all of these tests that we could go and and perform to actually confirm the validity of the theory. One of the big problems with string theory is that a lot of it is non-confirmable, right? And that's why I think string theory has, in, in many ways, hit some intellectual dead ends and people have struggled with it in the physics community because a, a lot of what it predicts is not really testable. Now, some physicist is going to send me a note saying you're wrong and okay, I'm not a physicist. Um, but you get my point, right? The, the theory that it's selfish, reckless people uh, who are out there, you know, causing all this to happen is really not a, a testable theory or the, the tests of it are things that, uh, you know, as, as the last quote was anecdotally, we've seen. Yeah. Okay. Here's a hypothesis for my theory. We should go out and look at the data, 2019, 2018, 2017, going back. And what we will see, uh, and I'm confident that this is what we'll see. I don't have this data. This data is largely private. It's uh, in Minnesota, it's owned by the government. You can't actually get it. Um, But there are people who can get it, researchers who can get this, others who can get it. What you will see is if you plot crashes particularly fatal crashes. That's the ones I think we should be most interested in. Not the fender benders, but plot the fatal crashes at the time that they happened. What you will see is that the bulk of the fatal crashes happen outside of areas of peak congestion. They will happen in the middle of the day. They will happen in the early morning hours. They'll happen in the late evening hours. That's when the bulk of the fatalities happen. In urban areas, right, where you have overwhelming levels of congestion. We can talk about rural areas different. The distribution there would be different because rural areas are dangerous more of the time because there's less overarching congestion. In urban areas, you will see a cluster, in a sense, of fatal crashes at those off-peak times. Once a pandemic starts, my theory suggests, and this is the hypothesis, that that distribution will change. And that what you will see in 2020 and what you will see in 2021 is that the crashes become uh, more spread out over time. They're not clustered in those off-peak hours. They're now uh, more persistent throughout the day. There might still be a little bit of clustering because there's still a little bit of congestion. But what you'll see is that the crashes start to happen now at at a more uh, almost random way. They're not clustered the way they once were. I think the larger the data set you can get, if we could look at this nationwide, it'd be amazing. If we look at it in whole states or whole regions, I think it would tell a really powerful story. And it would, in a sense, affirm or, or, or you know, deny the validity of my theory. Let's go do that. Like, I would love that. Why, why aren't the national research people doing that? And I'll, I'll tell you why. And this is going to sound like deeply cynical. It's not their theory of how the world works. Their theory of how the world works is the theory of the 1990s NFL. Let's add more padding. Let's add more, uh, you know, 
shock supporters. Let's add more, uh, you know, from an automobile standpoint, let's add more airbags. Let's mandate seat belts. Let's put in buffer zones. Let's remove trees. Let's create all this extra uh, room for margin for error. And that's how we make things safer. And the number of fatalities has remained stubbornly high because that's not the core problem. The ray of hope here is that uh, we can fix this, right? Um, We can actually spend a lot less money, which is something that we're struggling mighty with to get the money to, to, to maintain all these roadways that we built. We can actually spend a substantially less amount of money to build a transportation system that is way safer than the one we have now. And oh, by the way, if we did that, it would also make it safer for people walking, people biking. It would also make our neighborhoods better places. It would also make them financially more productive. It would also help our cities become wealthier and stronger and better better places to live. It would help our small businesses have a better competitive advantage. There's a, there's a whole like realm of great things that happen when we get past this myopic view of traffic safety. We can do this. We actually have a chance to make things better on a broad scale. If you're listening to this today, go tell somebody about that. Go explain it to them. Go talk to them. Go say, hey, don't get caught up in hating someone else. Don't get caught up in a narrative that allows you to feel comfortable because someone else is a bad person. I don't care what your VAC situation is. I don't care what your political views are. I don't care who you vote for. We got to resist those easy, comforting narratives that say, you know, if only we could fix the other person. I've said this a few times on past podcasts. I'm a... I'm a Catholic. Uh, I, I go to church regularly. I struggle a lot. I'm not saying this to say that I'm a, I'm a good person. Um, I, I think part of being Catholic is, is recognizing that, you know, we all have a lot to fix about ourselves. I think in, in, in a lot of my early Catholicism days, uh, I, I struggled to recognize that fact. And I spent a lot of time uh, sitting in the pews, hearing how uh, things needed to change, thinking, yeah, like the other person needs to change, right? Uh, oh, I wish my brother was here to hear this sermon. Oh, I, I wish this person I didn't like very much or had a disagreement with was here to hear this sermon. And it took me a long time of, of becoming an adult to recognize that, no, I'm the one who needs to hear this sermon not the other person. I, I'm, I'm the one who needs to hear it. We all need to, to, to not allow these narratives to affect us, to infect us, to allow us to uh, believe that it's reckless, selfish people out there. It's, 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 it's the people who are not us who are out there creating all the problems. Because what it does is it makes us into lesser people. And it also blinds us from seeing what the actual problem is. And the actual problem is a huge one that's killing thousands of people, tens of thousands of people every year, maiming, creating traumatic injury to millions of people. But it's a problem that we can actually solve. 
and we can solve it much easier and much better and in much more better, much more prosperous ways than we're trying to go about it now. Thanks everybody for listening. You take care. Uh, we'll be back again soon. Keep doing what you can to build the struggle. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.